Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, the lovely Dave Natick. Hands together. Hands together. Welcome, welcome. Dave, welcome. What's everyone, what's everyone drinking today? Just a nice a glass of wine. Um, Mike, do you want to give the compliance spiel? Sure. Well, I want to hear what I want to. I want to hear the details of Dave. Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're beverage. Beverage. This, is a, this is an Angel's Envy Manhattan. Whoa. So, uh, what's the story on Angel's Envy Manhattans? It's a, just a really good bourbon. Oh, I love that. So, I too. I'm drinking a bourbon sour, a whiskey sour, bourbon sour. This is handmade. That's the froth of an egg white that I put in there myself. Squeeze Good the lemon. That's why I haven't ever reached you on Slack in the last hour. Now it's, it's all coming together. <laughs> yes, it's all <laughs> precisely right. And it is, deli- you know what? I wanted to bring my uh, my cocktail game up because I knew Natig was going to come on with something special. He was going to bring the championship belt. Eggs, eggs and mm-hmm. alcohol. Yeah. Never oh, been a drink. You're going to get your protein. Have you ever tried it? Go sour. I have. I have. I have this tried. is how you can drink endlessly without <laughs> getting drunk. You Wait, get your protein, protein in every shot. Of course. Yeah. True all, story. All, all drinks have raw eggs in them. Yeah. <laughs> another another Canadian specialty is the um, the bloody the Caesar, right? Which comes with it's it's clamato sauce. In the oh. U.S., it's not very big, but. It just comes with the Clamato juice, but the key is to actually get clams in a can <laughs> and drop them in at the bottom. You're just long, making crap up with, now. Swear to God, this is the perfect. <laughs> this is the perfect beach cocktail. So and you then you get a toe and you put the vodka, vodka, the clam, the Clamato juice, some salt, some pepper, some Worcestershire sauce, a little bit of, of veggie, whatever pickled veggie you want on top. But you put the clams at the bottom with the long spoon, and then you drink while you eat. Yeah. It's absolutely it's, delicious. Typically, and you do it for eight hours at a time. Well, yeah, it's a ch- breakfast of champions. Then you add an egg for breakfast. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's breakfast. And what brunch. did we drink yesterday, Mike? Like I, I, I didn't. Oh, I didn't get yeah, the, we had the, Australian, the We had the Australian. We did the uh, Shiraz of Australia. We had a flight of uh, some Australian Shirazes, and then we had the battle of uh, a California Syrah versus a French Petit Syrah. So it was quite the day. It was all wow. the Syrahs, all of but them. One, I'm guessing the Petit Syrah one Syrah. because it's more interesting the, and spicy. Um, I, I liked it better, and it was French, and the French just do wine better than everyone else. Ooh, <laughs> we just lost fifty percent of our, of our live <laughs> participants. So, speaking of participants, all participants should be should be notified that whilst the advice with respect to wine and fine liquors is absolutely within the scope of this conversation, <laughs> all investment advice should be achieved and attained from a professional um, in, in your community area, licensed area, et cetera. This is for entertainment purposes only. And uh, Dave is very entertaining as well as are the rest of us. So don't take any of this as investment advice. Okay. You know, every, so that's every week you do that little spiel and I keep waiting you to say, seek the advice for a professional, unlike anybody here. Yes, like like you never, you never deliver the punchline. <laughs> goes without saying, don't you think? I, I, I'm trying not to say it. Yeah. You go on to prove that every episode. <laughs> right. 
This is really oh. just going to be an episode of Critical Role. Um, yeah, <laughs> so exactly. we should definitely do that. I'll get my dice. Exactly. <laughs> Corey's um, asking, why does Dave look so much better than you guys? Clean living, man. Clean, clean living. living. Corona living. Yeah. Corona it's living. better cocktails, more creative cocktails. So you were yeah. saying, you were telling me offline, what type of exercise were you and your wife doing? What did you guys decide to do? Yeah. So we, before people hopped on, so we, we've, we've had the other side of the COVID experience. I know a bunch of people have put on a little bit of weight and are now trying to get out from underneath before the winter hits here in New England. Um, we had the opposite, which was this stuff hit and I got off the road. And all of a sudden being, I mean, I used to travel 60 to 70% of the time. I mean, it was very rare. I had five days in a row without going somewhere. Um, and so once I was locked in for a while, my wife and I both just started jumping in. We, we started with a round of P90X3, which is, you know, oh, the old Tony so Horton video series. Love Jeez. that. My City, you know, just pure cheddar. Uh, and uh, we had a good run at that. And then we both decided we want to do a lot more lifting. So we jumped into a, a, a lifting regimen that we've been doing ever since. And we're now we're down four days a week on lifting and two days a week of something outside, big hikes, cardio. I'm also training for March for the Fallen, like I know some other folks. Um, mm -hmm. which been looking at the calendar, what, two and a half weeks? Yeah, I'm screwed. Two weeks in totally a day. Screwed. <laughs> totally screwed. Two weeks in a day. I see no Rodrigo looking a little sheepish here. I'm, yeah. I'm feeling definitely like we're not equipped for that no, this year at not. all we're going for a walk we're doing a virtual walk i'm gonna get up in the morning and put my shoes on and start walking i just don't know what's gonna happen after yeah, that precisely so dave you, you travel a lot when you give uh, for those listeners who haven't um, heard about your background what were you doing when you were traveling what's your expertise what are you known for in the, in the industry? yeah sure so i'm i'm largely called like the etf guy um i started in the etf business back in 93 which if you're keeping track is before there were etfs i was part of a team at what was then wells fargo nico investment advisors in san francisco um working on what would be uh, etfs 2 through 14 which were called the webs or the world equity benchmark shares which I think those things finally started trading in 95, might've been early 96. Um, but I was on sort of the buildup team for that. I was, a, I was a child to be clear. It's not like I invented them or anything dumb like that. I was a, a 20 something year old getting coffee for people who knew more than I did. Um, but I was sort of trapped in that index structure products, ETFs business, which was a huge part of what Wells Fargo Nico was trying to build then. And then was on the team that became BGI, Barclays Global Investors, when we sold the business to Barclays and then was there for about 18 months, sort of doing the transition, um, mostly shutting down all of the retail fund businesses in Asia and Australia. Um, and then came eventually, long story short, was an active fund manager during the dot-com boom. That didn't work out very well. That's then a great story. Back to the ETF like space. Can you tell uh, that story or no? I, I can, but we'll get there in a minute. But anyway, yeah, yeah. long story short, I ended up back in the ETF business in the early 2000s and was at ETF.com for about a decade, uh, ended up being the CEO at ETF.com. And then fairly recently, just in January, left ETF.com to join ETF Trends and ETF Database, which were sort of competitive sites, Trends being the more content-oriented one, DB being the more data and research-oriented one. But I, I focus on product structure. I focus on quant financing as it impacts actual advisors and investors, sort of not, not necessarily the depth you guys go, because you guys will go real darn deep. Um, but I'm, I'm mostly a poser when the math gets too hard. You know, so when, once you put an integral in the equation, I'm, I'm, I tag. <laughs> that's, where, that's where Mike comes alive. 
Okay. Anything that's scribbly. Is it in crayon? I'm definitely <laughs> there then. Exactly. So there's a story to, to tell then um, about well, your no, I days? One of I was both the best and worst <clears throat> active manager in the world, depending on when you want to start the measurement points. <laughs> like, so we started a, um, so I ran a fund uh, with partners, obviously called uh, Open Fund. Uh, we, the company was called Meta Markets. And we started in 97, 98, something like that. Um, and, you know, our, our we were a new economy tech fund. I mean, it's cringy to talk about it all now. Uh, and we basically bought momentum, flipped IPOs, and that worked incredibly well until it all worked incredibly badly. So we wrote it out like we had 150% up year and a down 94% year. Like <laughs> it was just straight up. That's like a break even. Yeah, it was basically, it was like a mountain climbing <laughs> expedition. Uh, and then, you know, we went, we were starting to go bankrupt when the market crashed. And by the time 9-11 happened, we were, we, that, it. Was it. that was all yeah. she wrote. And we, so we just shut the thing down. But it was fun, but it made me uh, even more convinced I should be a quant, not an active manager. <laughs> so say more about quant, quant financing. You're, so you're, you're more, mostly focused on quant financing of ETFs. Or so say more about that. Not well, no. Sure. So like, to, so I come to ETFs from a quant background, right? So when I okay. started in this business, I was drinking the Kool Aid of indexing of the late '80s, early '90s, which was really everything in the institutional space at that point. Um, and so, you know, at Wells Fargo Nico, our clients were the Federal Employee Retirement System and you know, CalPERS and, you know, the Harvard Endowment and all of these huge pools of money that had migrated towards passive uh, really in the late 80s and early 90s. And so from there, it was all about, well, now what's the what's the next thing? What are you adding? Because honestly, the margins were crap back then and they're still crap now, right? I mean, we ran the Federal Employee Retirement System in 1993 for, I think, two basis points for the large cap equity. 93? Yeah, 93, 94. It was definitely sub five. I mean, it was very, very thin, but it was, I don't know, wow. tens of billions of dollars mandate. Sure. Um, I just didn't run. know it went that low even back then. It did. It did. Now, interestingly, one of the, the games back then, which everybody now realizes, but didn't then, was the ability to lend, right? That Whoa, was where yeah. all the money was. Um, the inefficiencies in the second lending market were just phenomenal. Um, and that sort of has carried on into BlackRock's business today. I mean, you know, BGI became what was bought by BlackRock. iShares became the brand in the late eight, late nineties. But you know, under the hood, there the secret to their success has often been a very, very good sec lending program. <laughs> like, so I was going to ask you actually, just from your, on your ETF side, do you are we are we at the point where we're seeing negative TERs yet because of the basically the fees are zero. We, the, we had a couple, but they haven't lasted, right? So we had, um, so the SoFi funds are still out. Those are at zero, right? And, that, and that's part of the shtick there, right? Is there some money to be picked up off second lending? Um, yep. There was a rebating fund that was rebating $50,000 a year past zero to the fund. That one got closed down. At that point, I think people legitimately look at that and think it's a gimmick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that's happened is the margins in second lending for most stocks have collapsed because there's just more information. It's a much more open market. There are services like data explorers that will actually tell you how much you should be paying um, to, for a borrow, those kinds of things. So they're cornered. And in that supply, right? Because Vanguard and, and BlackRock basically lend out all of the securities in their in their 
Well, uh, Vanguard much less. So right. Vanguard's much. So different firms have very different approaches to that. BlackRock's been a very aggressive securities lender, meaning they're going to try to have as much of their portfolio out at a time as they can. Um, they run that program internally, and then they split some of the top line revenue, uh, most of the top line revenue back to the funds. Um, and then they basically try to earn a profit on the part of the revenue that they're collecting, but they have to staff a desk. So it's, it's, I think it's a very equitable relationship and I think they're very, very good at it. Um, other firms, I think Vanguard in particular, and this could be wrong now, but historically they've used lending agents, right? So they hire somebody else to run a sec lending program and then they share a hundred percent of the profit back to the fund, which is different, right? Profit versus revenue. Um, so right. there's been a lot of debate over the years about which one's fairer. Um, I think in general, BlackRock investors have done better on their deal with BlackRock, which is I, I, it's probably 75-25 now. For a long time, it was 50-50. Then it became you know, two-thirds, one-third. You know, it, it's definitely going in favor of investors. But you know, that for a long time in index management, the norm was a 50-50 split and most of not a lot, a lot of the revenue at least was being made on the sec lending side of the desk, not on asset management, not on, you know, pushing the button on the spreadsheet to rebell your S&P 500. Right, right. So so for ETF trends, you cover sort of the, the stuff that's at the forefront or new and novel in the ETF space. So what are some of the things you're looking at right now? Um, well, so this year has been a really interesting year and not just for the, the normal reasons we would expect, not just from COVID and election years and global politics and all that jazz. Um, we've had a couple big changes. So this is the first real year of uh, what we call the ETF rule, which has just basically made it a lot easier for people to show up and launch ETFs for a lot less money. Um, that has not led to a huge raft of new ETFs. Granted, there are 2,500 of them, so we probably have enough. But, um, but the other thing that happened was we saw the passage or the approval of a whole bunch of so-called active non-transparent structures or semi-transparent, or we could just give up and just call them all active strategies because that's really what they are. Um, and that's been a really interesting part of the market. We've had some really successful launches. American Century has a couple hundred million in their strategies now. T. Rowe just launched you know, basically their four best asset managers in the T. Rowe enterprise as ETFs. Um, those seem to be doing pretty well. And, you know, for a nerd like me, that was super interesting because there was a lot of question about, oh, will the structure work? And is one better than the other? And will this one, and the end result is cut to the chase. They're all working. They're all fine. They're all perfectly well designed. And market makers are more than happy to show up and keep these things trading you know, until the something hits the fan. And so far, everything's worked perfectly. So, so the structure so, stuff has gone away. Just so I can understand what that uh, rule has done. So you're basically not forced to divulge your positions at all times. Um, how how long can you keep, like you have to report what, one quarter in, in, in yes, a year? So, so basically, what, so two different things. So the active non-transparent structures, each one of them is different. So the, the first out of the gate was from a company called Presidian, which is owned by like Mason. T. Rowe Price is doing a different structure. Nisey has their own strategy. So there's a bunch of different ways of doing it. But at the end of the day, what you're doing is saying, we're only going to disclose the way a regular mutual fund discloses, which is quarterly, usually with a 15-day lag. Um, and that's sort of the standard, frankly, for most of the industry. And most of the industry is just fine with that. Like most active managers, even in SMAs, aren't sending a daily portfolio position report to every SMA client. They're just giving you an update monthly or quarterly, and that's fine. We're all fine with that. 
that's what these structures do is they basically say, we're going to this sort of standardized quarterly disclosure model. They could do it sooner if they wanted to, but quarterly is what most people are settling on versus ETFs, normal ETFs, fully transparent ETFs, where you're basically showing your portfolio every morning at eight o'clock, whether you and want to or not, because it's that's how you built that structure. So it lets an active manager effectively blind their portfolio the same way they would if they were running a traditional mutual fund. And the concern from a market making perspective was that the spreads were going to be much wider and because they don't have as much transparency. Yeah. How, how has that worked out? It's worked out. So every, every one of these solutions has their own trick for how they solve that problem. Because if I'm supposed to arbitrage a basket in the morning to be able to do a creation, I got to know what's in the basket because I got to be able to run a hedge, right? Nobody wants to take a giant unhedged risk. So in a traditional ETF, you know precisely what you have to deliver at the end of the day, and the manager knows precisely what he's going to get. So there's no friction. So that all works really well. And that's why ETFs function. Um, all of these non-transparent structures have some way of signaling to the market-making community what fair value is. So that could be a verified true portfolio value disseminated every second, like a truly like verified indicative value that's just a constant data stream. Which once you have that, being nerds, you would know, you can then build a model that's going to map that pretty tightly. You already know basically what's going to be in the portfolio because you know what it started with 30 days ago or 40 days ago. So that makes it pretty easy to run a pretty tight hedge because we're not talking about crazy strategies. These are all U.S. equity strategies. So it's... Right. I was going to think it it would get much more difficult as you get more esoteric. Yeah, like emerging markets and derivatives, and it would get really tough. But the stuff that's come out is pretty, I wouldn't say it's vanilla. Some of it's very high conviction, high active share stuff, but it's still playing out a U.S. equity beta. So it's pretty easy to figure out a half day hedge to get to the end of the day. And and sometimes there's proxy portfolios that they publish that are guaranteed to be 95% of the market cap of of the actual portfolio. So they all have different nuances, but they get to the same place, which is they give the market makers enough confidence to be able to go in and arbitrage out any big price discrepancies. And so far it's worked. Is there any fungibility side to that where, you know, so, so usually, you know, if you're big enough, you can t- say, I'll take the underlying. Are these ETFs preventing that so that you, they don't deliver the underlying to, I guess, the, the maker yeah, or, the, so the, or whomever? So, might pro- so again, there are a bunch of different models here. In the proxy model, you get delivery of the proxy. That's what you're going to get handed, right? Mm-hmm. So it may only be 95% of what's in the actual growth equity fund, but you're getting the 95 out of 100 growth names that you expect to get. So you can just choose to do that. Um, And the same thing on the way in, you have to deliver those 95 out of 100 names to be able to get the shares of the ETF. So that that works fine. Um, What you don't get to do is what's happened in some fixed income products historically where, hey, you know what? This underlying is really hard to buy, so I'm not going to bother. I'm going to buy the ETF and then present the basket and get the underlying handed to me. So that's happened in like junk bonds, junk munis. Big institutional players will use ETFs effectively as a washing machine to grab some of that stuff out that's a little bit tough to get clean. Yeah. Uh, but that's you can't do that in these non-transparent structures at all. So some of these models, I guess, are um, if you're if if you're provided the nav and you're you're then you need to build. So the market maker's got to build a model. Um, you know, so it's some kind of asset pricing model. Presumably, it's going to be based on some kind of um, 
estimated betas to to industry sectors or factors or just cap yeah. on beta. Have you? I think we were chatting before, right? You you read Corey Hofstein's new paper. Oh, super uh, great! Yeah, yeah. If anybody hasn't read it yet. Corey's the, the, Corey, the Corey, liquidity Corey. cascade. That one shameless plug. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right, exactly. But, no, but he did he did talk about this as a contributing factor to the um, increasing fragility of market structure, right? Where you've got um, market makers who are uh, tr- trying to model their exposures for hedging purposes using some sort of um, you know asset pricing model, and typically that's levered to market beta, and so changes in market beta change what they need to hold in their model and vice versa. And it introduces yep. more. Of sort oh, of there's a lot of reflexivity. reflexivity. Yeah. yeah. There's a ton. I mean, there, the, it's not just ETFs, right? Like our whole market structure right now has multiple reflexivity inflection, reflexivity inflection points. Can you even say that? Um, Reflexive, absolutely, reflexivity yeah. Reflexive reflexivity is the correct way. Of does, which is it, it sort of quite brilliantly goes through and says, where are all of these, unexpected relationships. Um, and some of them are very strong and identifiably correct and provably true, like the pro-cyclical rebalancing of leverage or something like that. Those are like, that's just math. That's how that works. There's no way around it. There's no dodge. There's no better product. Um, and some of it is a little bit harder. And you guys have talked about this with several of your guests here. Things like, you know, what are you doing to the price discovery mechanism as X percent of the market becomes, quote unquote, passive? Those also have these sort of reflexivity qualities to them. Um, They're much more harder to prove. The transmission mechanisms are sometimes specious, um, but they're still true in the sense that, yes, if 99.9% of the market was indexed, we would have no price discovery Etc. Like they 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 hold up when reduced to their logical absurdities, but we live in the real world, which is a lot messier. Right? So, what so, are the frictions in in the real world that that, in your opinion, um, derail or diminish the um, veracity of some of these stronger claims about the impact of passive investing, like the ones made by, for example, Mike Green? I know I don't want to single him out, but just sort of like. That general no, that was a great conversation. I love that yeah. conversation, right? Um, and, and I'm not going to sit here and try to refute his, you know, 50, 50x multiple math course, or any yeah. of that stuff. But um, but some of the some of the like the complexities they get lost in there. The first one is just this assumption that passive is passive, um, and that that all passive is created equal, and that when we say something like "Ooh, the market's 15% passive now," what does that mean? The that's such a big umbrella because inside that. passive, you have an enormous number of people making systematic value bets and an enormous number of people simultaneously making momentum and growth bets in passive vehicles. But nobody would try to tell you they're ambivalent about which one happens for price discovery in those underlying stocks, right? This is such a a nomenclature challenge, right? Um, I mean, Corey and I were chatting throughout the day about this because you get this pushback on well, you know, indexing is passive or not, or, you know, so, so much of, I think what Mike Green is saying and what Corey was asserting is predicated on a definition of passive, which is market cap weighting, right? And if you're deviating from cap weighting, then you're active well, and, and, and we don't need to have a discussion about nomenclature, but if we sort of just say, so actually I'll, I'll throw it back to you. So there's been claims that about 45 to 50% of the market is now passive investing. 
Does that include non-market cap weighted index investing in that number? Or like, do you have better or more granular numbers that you would- Well, so first of all, nobody has any of those numbers because the only thing we can track is public product. So, and the vast majority of index money is not visible. It is not something that you're going to see when you go to your Bloomberg screen and pull up. Well, BlackRock came, up with, came out with a report a couple of years ago where they where they also surveyed- They tried I don't to. Know, something like $6 trillion worth of global institutions and- you know, so so you know they're they're trying to triangulate, right? But right. Anyway, so it's so look, it's a big number. It's something less than fifty percent and more than ten. That like we're in that range, ninety five percent range. Is that, is that, yeah, that's but what the you got. The problem is like hey. that would be a problem if what all that money in was either like Acqui or VT or something like that. But it's not, right? Yeah, there's a big chunk of it that's in the S and P five hundred. Okay, well let's start with that. The S and P five hundred is the most actively managed index in the world. There's a committee that decides what goes in and out of it. We just saw that Tesla, while it is 1% of the US market, is not allowed into the S&P 500. So, okay, that for, for reasons based on something. So other- I agree. Wait, 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 wait. Can I just, they, they, they ex- I never, I didn't hear, hear this. Did they excluded it because of a technicality or a discretion? They excluded it for reasons they have not oh. chosen to <laughs> disclose. But like, either way, like, Pretty close to, I agree with you. Technically it is an active index. There's a committee and they select and sometimes there's oddities. But you just had had a stock 15% of its value because a bunch of people in a boardroom made one decision. That is not passive investing. But it's also not typical, right? Like that's an outlier event. But I listen, I- No, 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 no. That is not an outlier event. That's okay, so warm. Like, look at what happened when the Qs just decided to spontaneously rebuild the NASDAQ 100 index because they didn't want to have to kick Apple out. Like, in like big, these big old name brand indexes that we talk about, like the NASDAQ 100 and the SP 500 and the Dow, God forbid, um, like they're not passive and they're not actually particularly useful target vehicles for investors. If everybody was, if the passive number we're talking about, whether it's 10 or 50% was the Russell three, then we'd have a much bigger problem. But underneath this umbrella of passive are people doing low vol smart beta and hedge funds doing sector rotation strategies. I mean, if you look at flows, yeah, big cheap beta does tend to dominate flows, but it's not the same big cheap beta, right? If everybody decides to sell their SPY and buy IWM, which is the small cap ETF, well, okay, that's price discovery. We just did a whole bunch of selling of large cap in favor of small cap, which in fact is what we saw in a bunch of August, right? So, those- yeah, but if they were to, if they were to sell SPY and buy, um. A Russell 3000 or a VTI or something like that. And so it's a total market index. You're still 95% of the cap weight of that index, of the weighting of that index is still going to be the same. Right. But that's not what we actually. So when people talk about indexes, that's not what daily flows look like. Right. So to Mike's point in his previous, when you had him on, he's talking about sort of this incremental flow that would happen if everybody sold Contrafund and bought SPY. The problem is they're not going to buy SPY. Some of them are going to go buy you know, principles, mega cap, smart beta fund. And some of them are going to buy the Qs and therefore load up on Tesla. And some of them are going to buy SPY and skip Tesla entirely. And you add all those decisions together every single day. And it is not a monolithic move into cap weighting. That's just so, not so what no, that's, that's monolithic. That's the monolithic discussion often comes around this idea of forced retirement plans 
you you you're working a portion goes into your retirement plan that retirement plan goes to these passive vehicles and I don't know as cap much weight. as you do cap weight. That, that's what I was going to ask. But I don't I think know as much as you do. But again, retirement accounts seem to me to be very cap weighted oriented. They're not getting fancy with factors. They're not getting fancy with anything else. And they're not timing between IWM and, and the SPY. They're really well, just buying an endless amount of that very passive um, ETF. And I don't know what that number is, but if it continues to grow the way it does, um, but but the the irony is that defined contribution space is one of the last places that active fund managers are still pulling in assets. Like egg, if you remove the defined contribution market, the U.S. mutual fund market would be a fraction of the U.S. ETF market. Like the defined contribution assets dominate the active flows. So 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 I, I, ironically, the opposite is true, which is that that endless bid on the bottom of the market, while it rolls up to cap weighting, because by definition, all active managers together equal the market, the way it's being implemented is, you know, some Dodge and Cox fund that's still charging a buck and a half. Like that's where margin, those funds still get assets. At the margin, are we seeing more money flow? Like your, your typical defined contribution fund. Um, they're not there are very few funds that are migrating from passive index based for sure um, default yeah. options to active default options there are much larger number that are moving the other yeah. way and a new entry this is a state of disequilibrium yeah so it's it's at the margin so I'll, i i will certainly agree with you or at least i'll concede to you that um there is still a very large fraction and and one of the larger fractions across all the different investment cohorts in active funds in the defined contribution space, at the margin, you are still seeing a continuous flow of funds toward the passive space and away from the traditional active space and towards um, cap weighting. No, yeah. So I'm not trying to argue that active is in the middle of some massive comeback and we all missed the memo. That, that's For not sure. the point. Of, not trying to make that point at all. I'm simply saying that when we're starting to talk about things like structural impacts on price discovery, this is a big, complicated, hairy market. And so I, I get nervous anybody, anytime anybody tries to tell me, well, because of cap weighting, the market is destroyed because I look at flows every single day. And on any given day, it's just as likely for me to say, huh, the like flows into SPY and its ilk are down 10 billion and flows into momentum tech stocks are up 30. Like that's not an unusual day in this year. But try to tell me why that means that we don't have any price discovery going on. Well, hold on a second. So, it, it, so we have your 1993 example for you replicating indices at two basis points right. uh, 30 years ago. So we know like institutions have a pretty dominant place and there's a whole bunch of assets that are just parked. Yes. Sort of market cap. They're not even part of this discussion. And so this is where I... I there's and, and I'm not sure that it really matters in the sense of it is it is the madness of markets to some extent. You're in a disequilibrium state where you are going from active to passive every day, gen, generally not every day, generally at speaking, the margin trend, on average. at the margin right. yeah, where no, the totally, prices are totally made. With you 100 percent So this is this is the challenge, right? The active manager has a, a set of stocks, they're sold every day. And then they're placed with their cash into the index, generally speaking. So not 
on whole, but at the margin, that disequilibrium is where we sit at the moment. And that is the thing that can cause distortions until such time. So if, you know, the, the whole argument that, oh, no, you know, um, a market cap could be 85% of the port, uh, 85% of the market, but 15% would preserve uh, price discovery because that 15% would go and find the price. In equilibrium, agree. But isn't on the way, it's going to, we're going to have large distortions based on hurting human behavior, all of these other issues. So I, I think we would all agree that the S&P 500 is a decent proxy for passive investing in the United States, right? Certainly the most used, most tracked, most invested, large ca- equity. I'd argue. In the United States. <laughs> yeah. so, I don't want to lose an argument. So, well, okay. so Well, but if we start with that, then explain to me how in this time when we would expect even more money to be running from their underperforming active managers that are charging too much into the S&P 500, why are we seeing a higher concentration spread in performance than we've ever seen in my career where you've got 10 stocks in the S&P 500 responsible for 40 something percent of the returns and the others if, if I'm a return chaser right, I'm but, going to but, reach, we're going I'm going to chase those 10 stocks right but and my point so, is if all the money yeah. was just going to the S&P 500 you would actually expect the top and bottom stocks to be quite tight and that's not actually what we've seen. Like I didn't have even no, run the No, I don't think so. That one little point of um, disequilibrium that causes the 10 stocks to begin their roll down the snowball hill creates more and more self-reinforcing price discovery, which says, no, I should own more of Microsoft, uh, Facebook. But that's an active management decision. So if all the money's passed- it's True, 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 true it is. That's fair. That's fair. So it's it's a it is a hurting slash self reinforcing cycle. I'll be You'd quiet. Expect, like the pa- the first papers I read on this, like in the late nineties, early two thousands, about what was how indexing was going to destroy the world, or go read the you know indexing is worse than market Marxism argument from Bernstein. Right, you go read that paper. The core of the argument is price discovery is going to and is collapsing, and therefore the mean performance dispersion between the best and worst stocks in the S&P 500 will continue to collapse until there's no longer a meaningful difference from the best stock and the worst stock in the index. The actual math says the exact opposite has happened. We've had just massive divergence between- I don't think that that's what that, the, I don't, I don't know that that's what that implies, right? So, so, so one of the things that, that fell out of a lot of these conversations about cap-weighted indexing is- the fact that the so imagine and I'm I'm just throwing numbers out there, but imagine that Apple has five percent of the cap weight of the index. I'm not sure what they have, but let's just go, let's just say they have five percent of the cap weight of the index. Do they have and 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 that and that it's fifty times uh, larger in terms of its cap of its proportional weight in the index than um, the tenth largest stock? Does Apple also have 50 times the daily dollar liquidity as the 10th largest stock? And if they don't, but at the marginal dollar, they need it's pretty close. to go into that stock? Volume, is it- I mean, tra- trading volume on a dollar basis tracks market. I mean, I haven't run the study lately, but I've never run that study and not had it be a pretty damn high correlation between But even if, it's, even if it's slightly off, even if it, if it, if it, if it tails off at like, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, 80% or 90% or whatever, then you're going to have a disparity where you've got dollars that are going to flow into the market. They're going to hit the offer. There's going to be at the margin, fewer shares, dollar weighted basis, fewer shares on the offer and all things equal. 
there's going to be not enough supply in the largest stocks to meet the demand because there just isn't the same proportional level of supply as there is required for that share of market capitalization. I I actually think there's something much more interesting going on here. So it's not that I disagree with any of this, right? Like clearly, if if you reduce this argument to the to its absurd level, sure, indexing destroys the universe. That's yeah. that's Butler's favorite approach to all arguments. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just I want to hear the more interesting one. Everything's got to be ridiculous. But, but <laughs> so I always come back to these two things. It's like we can have this interesting debate about this and you can't tell this is one of my favorite topics ever. But like we can have this debate. There's a bit of so what? Like, are we going to like literally ask Congress to pass a law banning passive investing? And exactly how would you implement that? I mean, like literally, there's a little bit of so what. No, but I don't think that there's no one on this. Well, we might complain internally about this dynamic, but that's not really the point. The point is, if this dynamic is true, then, then what? what should we do, or how should investors position? Right. Right. And and I think so. I'm glad we got there. So I think that's interesting. But I think actually there's a much bigger story behind this, which is that because of the way media has started to influence investing, right? The comp- like started with Reg FD and it's just gotten worse and worse or better and better, depending on your perspective, right? Where everybody knows everything all the time. What that means is larger companies are always going to have more focus, whether that's research, data, news, whatever, and smaller companies are going to find it harder and harder to break through. And this is just another version of these inequalities in the economy we're seeing over and over and over again. So differential attention. Yeah. So the reason we talk about FANG stocks is not because it rhymes and it's cute. It's because you can go through almost anybody's model, ESG, smart beta, tech, trend following, thematic, and you'll find the same 50 stocks in Almost all of them. Now, some of them get splintered off, like, you know, the energy stocks don't end up in the ESG stuff. But boy, it's incestuous and that stuff overlaps. And that's not because it's wrong. It's because the way we think about investing is now permeated by this sort of information frequency culture. And so so, so we created this bizarre thing where, you know, stock 504 in the cap spectrum isn't doesn't have a pathway to get the same attention except doing it the old fashioned hard way of running a better business, earning more money and having their fundamentals show up on somebody's screen. Right. So this information is, I just want to understand, we're talking about 500 stocks in the market. The ones with smaller market cap have less resources in order to get the attention that they need. You're talking about attention on who's coming to their quarterly calls, you know, uh, who's writing a report on them. Okay, I just wanted to separate actual research being disseminated to these allocators that you mentioned versus just simple zeitgeist. It's it's in the Twitter sphere. It's in the zeitgeist. Everybody in the planet's reading or hearing more about these larger stocks and therefore at the margin, they're getting more of a bid than the other lower cap stocks. Right. And and to loop this back to some of where Corey was headed in his paper, um, you know, it t- and back to the point of like, well, okay, if we as- assume that some version of this is true about the markets, what does it mean for how we invest, how we tell our clients to invest? Let's focus on that because we're not going to pass laws banning indexing, right? I and mean, that's ridiculous. So what does it mean? Um, I think it means that we are in this period of heightened volatility. And that's part of why I love the fact people are trying to talk about this in terms of convexity, because what it means is the steady state market, whatever we're thinking it is, is actually the most fragile state of the market 
not the sort of lowest entropy state, right? It's actually the highest entropy state. It's the mm -hmm. place you're most likely to get tipped off. And so if you, if you accept that, then what that means is low volatility would be the time to just lever the hell out of both your puts and your calls, right? You just, just create that smile and accept the fact that if the market goes like this, I'm going to lose 2% and I'm fine with that because that's not the equilibrium state. And so that's why, part of why I love Corey's stuff so much is part of what like um, recently, oh God, I'm going to get the name of the funds wrong. There were three ETFs launched this week that I was just like nodding my head about. Corey, I'll type it in chat. Um, I think it's Spy C for convexity. Um, and it's, uh, you know, two, two old industry veterans who basically are building products to basically do this and say, look, the equilibrium state is not steady state markets anymore. Let's assume that's the disequilibrium state and put all of our extra energy in making sure we make money on the tails, which I think is a really interesting. Oh, it's been interesting topic. this last week, how NASDAQ lost 10% faster than its history. Like it was like four days of massive losses. Simplified. By, of course. Yeah. Well, whole separate conversation about volatility equaling speed, which, you know, I think is a really interesting way of thinking about it. What somebody on your show has said recently, like I, that idea that we haven't actually increased volatility, all we've done is shorten time. That feels much truer to me than anything. Um, there was a great NPR story like 10 years ago on like auditory, making the sound of trading audible. And when you do that, you can like you can literally hear how the markets changed, which I think is really interesting. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I got to look into that. So um, yeah, sorry, I'm rambling now. Can I say uh, ticker symbols here in a podcast so that we that as, long as, as, not as, as long as they're not mine? I didn't. I didn't do the I'm just going to say some stuff. <laughs> you can say whatever uh, you want. SPYC, SPUC, and SPD, whatever they are. Right. So it's spy convexity, spy up convexity, spy down convexity. Right. One, one. So what are the underlying mechanics? Are you familiar with them yet? Or, or I, um, so you haven't had a chance I, to dig in? Just, I believe what it is, is just getting beta exposure to start with. I don't know whether they're buying IVV or whether they're doing that by buying all the stocks. My guess is they just launched their buying IVV um, or VU. Um, and then they're just you know using derivative, using options to basically profit from being wrong on the downside and profit from being wrong on the upside, right? So you're effectively taking the dividend yield of the S&P 500, which is 2% headed to zero, uh, and then using that to fund you know, options on either side. And you're just buying more straddles as Vega compresses because you can spend the same dollar amount, but buy more units. Yeah as Vega compresses and vice versa and, and try to yeah. preserve For, that. further proof. The only class any MBA should take is options and just move on. Like, because if you can under, not because you should all be trading options, because once you understand all your Greeks, everything else just falls into place. Yeah. You're, you're able to price oh, yeah. everything else more yeah. appropriately. Yeah. Um, you did mention ESG now. I mean, this, this seems like, Oh, don't get me started. A cavalcade of, Ugh. um, Mike, I would have thought you were Mr. ESG. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I'm I'm also very politically correct. Yeah, he <laughs> had to leave two progressive countries so that he could. Speak <laughs> <laughs> I love ESG. I just would like to know who's E, who's S, and who's G. Well, I totally we agree would with you there. like to espouse, and once we identify that, then of course you can do it. I think I think Notre Dame has done a wonderful job. And Notre Dame, in their in their investment endowment, has espoused an E, an S, and a G that are very congruent with a certain religious 
Sure. Uh, Catholicism, which makes perfect sense. I yeah. understand that wonderfully. The That's problem a Catholic. is, yeah, the last Catholic. Aren't they all? Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> it's all built on forgiveness. Anyway, um, so, the, the point. The point is, how do you like un until you can get to that group that you identify with? This, this is really hard because you need to identify very specifically who you would like to identify with in those ESs and Gs, and so that's where it falls. It falls down for me a little bit. It's not that it's not a good thing. That's just my, you know, philosophical you're issue. You're totally right, right? The problem with ESG is an ESG. It's packaged products, right? Packaged right. products are the worst way to implement ESG, except for every other way that we've had yeah. pretty recently, right? Because, um, I mean, like literally in the ETF space, we have the Catholic Values Fund and the LGBT Fund, both classified as socially responsible investing. Obviously, those two portfolio managers would not agree <laughs> when they got into the same room. Yes. But yeah. like as an ETF nerd, oh, I basically have to say, yeah, these are both values-based values-based investing. Exactly. It should right. be VBI. We should we should start a values-based ETF company and have like choose your own values. Choose your values. Well, so, like, you be values. Are you a yeah. monk? Are you a monk? Do you believe in women's rights? Even male rights? You Are you a monk? Probably gets narrow real tight. <laughs> I don't know. I'm into I'm into bald man, bald male rights. Yeah, I get the fun for me. The yeah. the head polishing fund. I think we'll get OAUM on the bald uh, rich white man uh, category. Probably. I don't know if you're gonna. Oh, that'll sink. That'll sink the whole. <laughs> But the uh, you know, but this is the problem of ESG. It, it has been a big year for ESG. It's been uh, you know double the flows we've had in any year in ESG ETFs. If you actually layer in under mutual funds, it's even more right. So it's definitely not a fad anymore. There's hundreds of billions of dollars showing up in these strategies again, led by institutions. That's where all this started because, like you said, people like Notre Dame can articulate a mandate very clearly and have the assets to be able to say, "You manager, go run this strategy for me." That's where ESG ends up. I think ESG is what cracks direct indexing open for the average investor. Um, certainly firms like Parametric and Optimal, they've built whole businesses on this already, whether they called it for ESG reasons or not. But a lot of advisors I've talked to, you know, they actually are approaching this from a two-pronged perspective. The two biggest problems they have, yeah. some guy walks in who's a Google executive but wants to be passively invested. And now you've got to figure out how to get him into a bunch of index funds that don't have Google in it. Good luck with that. Uh, and chances are he's probably not going to short Google to get it out of his portfolio because when that shows up on the PR, that's real bad. So solving that problem, what do you do? You get in the S&P 500 minus one. Very easy to do in a direct indexing platform. The other thing it lets him do is say, and I don't want to own tobacco stocks, right? And then he can just say, okay, it's S&P 500 minus three. That's super easy. And there are a lot of platforms building there. Um, Canvas from O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is probably the one that I think is getting the most uh, attention or traction with a certain class of, you know, billion plus FinTwit advisor. Um, but I think that that is the future, and it becomes the future really quickly once folks like Schwab bolt that into yep. their fractional share program, and, and now and, and everybody I rolls think, their own. Okay, and I think there's there's a category. Is, is, are these advisors can plug into these platforms and choose categories for their clients? So 500 minus type yeah, of. So 
there, there are quite a few platforms that do this now. Um, O'Shaughnessy's been pretty out there on financial Twitter about it because that's sort of where they are. But like Just Capital has been doing this, Ethic Invest, uh, Open Invest. There, there's quite a few of these platforms sprouting yeah. up right now. You know, it's very interesting in, in this world of protecting your 1%. To become the ethical advisor where you're paying them to make sure that you go to heaven rather than hell. <laughs> Maybe well, this is this is the point. That's brilliant. Like this that's just point, another right? angle, another marketing. It also, well, the interesting thing about this angle, and this is where like who's E, who's S, and who's G. If you can actually customize that to the point where you can make it bespoke for the individual, you now truly have an ESG, and you have, I think, an extra layer of defense against behavioral vulnerability. Yep. Because if I am, um, I'm, if I'm part of a tribe that even gives that extra layer, but if I've articulated a level of values, now I'm, I'm not beholden to performance vis-a-vis -vis an index, um, of ruthless capitalists. What I am is I'm a thoughtful investor who's decided on how I might invest ethically and am willing to suffer the slings and arrows of whatever performance cometh because I will only invest in an ethical manner. So you get this extra layer of, I think, behavioral attenuation if you can actually deliver an ESG that is totally customized to someone's value set. I think it, it grows in power exponentially if you can attach it to a group, obviously, because then you have a group of people who are supporting one another in whatever the performance would be, outperformance, underperformance, and whatnot. But it's I a, think it's fantastic because what it means is that there's an entire new cohort of investors who are non-profit seeking. So they're they're willing losers from a profit seeking perspective, which means that, hey, maybe factor investing might experience a renaissance. You know, there may be uh, some nickels lying around for well, passive indexes to, it, or, you it, know, active indexes. I thought to, I was in the role of saying, okay. No, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to blow up. I've been encroaching on that for, for I'm going to pop now. your bubble on that because what we've totally. seen recently is that probably since the Volkswagen blow up, um, most of the data being used to drive ESG portfolios. And I'm not saying this means it's ESG. I'm saying most of the data being sold to people implementing ESG strategies, which means it's coming from usually Sustainalytics or MSCI. If you actually use that data, it turns out to be whether it's useful as a social tool or not, it turns out to be a pretty interesting risk management tool. And that's really where this has started to raise. It's like the average ESG fund has beaten the crap out of the average non-ESG fund in the so far this year. Now, the reason's fairly it's straightforward. It's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. Right? No, <laughs> it's because the current crisis we're in has crushed yeah. energy. Yeah. Transportation, yeah, how are the airlines doing? Manufacturing, right? <laughs> are we getting back to yeah. cascading effects? Yeah. Are exactly. you pro cascading effects again? <laughs> Look, but, so, so one of the one of the interesting discussions between alpha, like it's really what you're saying is the uh, ethical versus the alpha, right? And so I was at a at a, uh, an alternative conference recently with Kaza Depot was saying, "Look, we, we're going to become much more." prone to, to look at the ethical nature of how you invest and the funds. But there's a big, you know, we have constituents and we have, our, our goal is to provide a certain level of return in alpha. And so we can't, we have to put these two things together, this idea of ex excess returns and ethical investing and ensure that we're meeting our ultimate objective, which is to provide real money to our constituents at the end of the year. And so what's more important than that to our constituents and what's 
actually the goal of what investing is about. Uh, but, I, it's a tough, it's a tough debate, and I would lean towards make make the money, right? Well, it, it depends. You, you, you capitalist pig. Depends on your mandate, <laughs> right? Like, so, so you know, I'm I'm an Episcopalian, and I've and, you know, am very tangentially touching some of the folks that do the Episcopal endowment management and all that stuff, and it has a bunch of ESG stuff in their investment mandate. They, you know, low carbon, all that kind of stuff. Which sounds like, because I grew up in the 80s, that sounds like I'm giving something up. But increasingly, what, what we're seeing is that doing something like using the input of how exposed somebody is to weather events, that's actually risk management. That is not, that's, whether you care about the environment or not, you can't argue the frequency of high impact storms from an economic standpoint has gone up. So that is a data set. You can argue about why. I'm not here to have a political argument. I'm just saying I have a bunch of data that suggests. Shouldn't shouldn't the risk premia associated with those companies that have that? They should be high. They should earn a higher return. (laughs) If well, they will because they're being priced down, right? So if you assume that they're managing those risks well and that there's not a chance they're going to have a dead year because they were exposed to a bunch of weather events and all of their refineries went offline. Then sure, okay. if they manage that okay. well, they should in, they should earn a huge excess return. But currently, they're priced as if those things basically never happen, right? So very few companies are correctly priced for their exposure to weather. I would argue some some ags, some ags are pretty well like soybeans. Soybeans respond pretty damn well to weather forecasts, right? Because so I'll grant you say this, Dave, looking at that, but I do decades. think it's a bit of a slippery slope, right? Because it's just really easy to build an index that expresses biases that you can position as, for example, um, anti-carbon str- uh, companies have performed better than uh, carbon-heavy carbon companies over the last 10 years or over the last 15 years, but really it's just because they've been energy light and energy is underperformed, you know, like it's just, it's really easy to create narratives to support a values argument and sell that. You don't have to do any of that. My point is you can do using divorce here. So you can be an automaton and approach this from a big data perspective. I have uh, 4,000 inputs. I'm going to mine that data to see what's predictive of standard deviation in my stock price, right? Totally standard big data thing to do. If you chose to do that and ignored intentionally everything around board diversity, everything around governance standards, everything around regulatory play ball, everything around bribery statutes, everything around energy. It's like if you chose to ignore every one of those data sets, which is now publicly available and 10 years ago was not available at all, you would be in violation of your fiduciary duty. Like These are important data sets about risk parameters that you have to at least test. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. We've got new data yeah. sources that provide For completely sure. different dimensions of risk on individual companies, they should absolutely be factored in, but they, I don't think that's quite where ESG goes, right? ESG is not factoring them in with a profit incentive. They're factoring them in, in order to be able to, to express a a set of values or create a narrative around expressing values to appeal to. It's an ESG bug, not a feature, right? 
it, it, it just, that's, that's a side effect of what, it's not what they cared about, it's not what they wanted to do, but all of a sudden, alpha generators have access to this database that ethical managers are not using it for that purpose. You talked about standard deviation around certain features. That's not what they're doing. They're using it to become a better ESG fund for their constituents. But it's been a, a byproduct of that has been that everybody else can benefit from better information. It's sort of a bonanza for people who want to data mine a, a strong, strong, an index with strong historical performance that also they can spin a great values story around, as cynic would say. You know, like but, I, I you could sort of. But, but again, it doesn't it matter whether you're a cynic or not. If the end result is you've generated better risk-adjusted performance for your client, and what absolutely I'm, what not. I'm, what I'm saying that there's an increasingly large body of evidence that whether or not you give a shit about anything, pardon my French, if you are simply trying to generate a lower standard deviation, higher alpha after you know uh, that ESG is a pretty damn good way to do that. Like when I started doing ETF analysis 10 years ago, I was building this data set for ETF.com. We put in a measure of risk adjusted alpha because it was like, oh, okay. And literally no smart beta fund, no actively managed bond fund, which is all we had then. None of them generated out of the 1200 funds we were looking at in 2010. Not one of them generated risk adjusted alpha over three years or longer. Not that surprising. It's a tough thing to do. You look now, almost every ESG fund does. On a three-year basis. Do, so don't they load on quality and low vol? They, well, that's not what they intend to do. What they intend to do is look at things like board diversity and carbon impact, et cetera, et cetera. Those tend to be, whether, they are, whether they're important or whether they're proxies for other things being managed. Like, board, like diversity in a workforce and board diversity, I think, are one of those things that are canaries in a coal mine. Uh, like, and, and I tend to be fairly... I mean, getting political. I tend to be pretty left of center. That's like fine, whatever. And I know that's not the same with everybody else, but regardless of that, dismiss all of that. Having a reported highly diverse board implies certain things about how you're managing the company. And it's the implication that's actually important. The having one other voice on the board, I don't actually believe is the thing that made your company perform better. But the fact that you made a point of doing that probably implies you're listening to your employees more than you would be otherwise. And that listening turns out to be a risk management factor. That's my, that, that would be my, that would be my argument. You got so the result team speechless. That's, I think it's uh, an interesting. I, 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 mean, I think that, that's fine. At the end of the day, if we go to 2008, when oil and uh, agricultural rip are ripping, you can go do your analysis then. And tell me how that works for you. You can't. It will not did not exist. The same. The, the thought of having some ethics would exist. <laughs> and if you had done that, you are a loser. Amazon doesn't do anything. Nobody does anything. Agrium, Potash, Exxon is the largest company in the freaking world. All of the all of the data that you would have mined to support the case in that that slightly different time frame would have invalidated this. If the idea is that we're going to provide excess returns. The reason why ESG is coming about right now, and it's not just the political climate, it's also because the quality low vol companies that typically are included in ESG indices have outperformed for 10 years. Yes. And if in a different yeah. market- Is it correlation I, or is it causality? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's true. I remember when I was, uh, when I got, when Mike was talking about um, the commodity crisis, my 
my Wall Street moment was being in the muck in Toronto during that massive commodity boom. And there was a fund that uh, whose benchmark was the Canadian S&P TSX 60. And it was a long only equity fund that uh, charged two and 20. And it was crushing that benchmark. And why it was crushing that benchmark is because it was 100% energy and mining and potash. Yeah, and sure. Was that fund? It was not a little bit of alpha. It was just massive. It was, it, 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 but when you compared it against, well, my, my whole shtick was, okay, cool. They're beating the S&P, but compared against the commodity index and they're underperforming, right? They're still underperforming a passive index, which you would enjoy. But at the time, when you're, when it's, if you're an ESG fund, or let's say somebody create, creates an, uh, an anti-ESG fund during the 2000 to 2010 period, they would have crushed the ESG funds in your model, right? It's it's just, it's it's well, a lot of correlation. We got, and the causality, you, you convinced me on the causality. I'd love for that to be true. But, I, but, I did my, I did a thesis in college on that thing, on that same thing, quality management, quality board, see how the profitability was in the organization. And there was a correlation there. We saw yeah. that. So I, I, I'm kind of with well, you. But, but I also see the other let's side. Go back to this sort of this, uh, you know, people hurting and the convexity issues here. Regardless of whether any of us is right in our argument on either side of this, and the people in chat who are violently disagreeing with us, <laughs> doesn't actually matter. I'm totally fine if everybody thinks I'm a moron. The problem is flows are suggesting lots of other people think this way too. So whether you buy my argument or not, let's again, bring it back to what are we doing for our clients? What are we doing as investors? If going forward, more and more people are going to be including these values-based decisions in their investing, mm -hmm. what should you do as an investor? Now, if you believe this is a short-term flash in the pan that will disappear in 16 months, great. Take the counter on it. We have $30 trillion in assets being handed down from people who are average age 75 to are average age 45. That group, average age 45, also called millennials, you look at the surveys on that, they are off the charts on their desire and expressed interest in values-based investing. And that's a question we've been asking since the 70s, and no generation has ever pulled anything like this one. Now, skeptically, you can say, yeah, until they lose money, blah, blah, blah. However, it doesn't mean that they handed this Is money that the outside view. view. But I don't know that that's the skeptical view. I think that's the outside view. Show me some people that want to lose money. But the, the, at the end but of the day, but the, the point is they're not. The millennials they might. If they are the market, then this will the come. The millennials out. might, except that they think that Tesla, that, that Elon Musk is a god that's going to save humanity. And therefore, their ethics go all day <laughs> him. The <laughs> no, but they're making money. They haven't lost it yet. Exactly. You that's know what, what I mean? mean? Like, but it's like, it, it, this is my point about things like Tesla. Oh. It doesn't, it, like, whether I like Elon Musk or not has no bearing on anybody in the universe. It's What's just a question important? of whether or not I believe other people are going to like him so much that they've been. No, I get, hey, you're, you're up in my Keynesian beauty contest now. with you. <laughs> <laughs> I have one, one algorithm we need to solve. How do you make one good drink and then not have to just drink straight bourbon after because your cocktail is done? Don't mind. Can you get me that algorithm of how I get a second? My wife has done 10 minutes in today, so I've been thirsty for I know, me too. But that's why I brought the <laughs> bottle of bourbon. I thought I gotta have a fallback. <laughs> <laughs>
exactly. For, for what it's worth, just to cap ESG, because bourbon's actually an interesting case in point, right? I'm not one of these people that believe that like alcohol stocks are going to go down because so many people don't want to drink booze. Like I'm a realist. <laughs> I live in the real world. Right. So yeah. the idea of like sin stocks yeah. and non-sin stocks, like if that's well, how you want to invest, that's great. That's awesome. But I'm only trying to figure out what do I think the mass of people are going to do. And I genuinely believe that there is a mass of people who are going to care about social issues, governance and global warming stocks. And, and whether or not you believe in that or not doesn't matter if more buyers okay. of stock believe what do you that think about marijuana stocks in the u.s there are no marijuana stocks in the u.s i i'm talking about the future <laughs> no, <laughs> not the real ones no canadian canadian small caps for the win yeah. <laughs> think local think local yeah cbd stuff yeah Oh, it's CBD. Yeah, no, there CBD. is a, there is now. I I don't know much about it. There is now an ETF in the U.S. that claims to only invest in U.S. listed legal cannabis adjacent yeah. companies because there is no actual publicly listed cannabis pharmaceutical company in the US. companies. It's a, the a lot, new a lot of dancing. A lot of dancing to make your index work. Yeah, is that I a cannabis? Adjacent? I've never heard that before, but I like it. Yeah, <laughs> hilarious. I agree well, with you, by the way, that it is ethic, like that whole ethical theme. I just can't go anywhere without hearing about it. And it's the I hear advisors everything. It, but what's what's happened is it used to be like a year ago, it was like, okay, great, let's invest in your stuff. Looking at, oh, by the way, do you invest in any of that uh, sin stuff? Oh, God, no, no, no. We're, we use futures contracts, so it's got nothing to do with it. Oh, okay, great, great, great. Now it's becoming part of like questionnaires. And it's just going to get more and more stringent from there. We I have a great doubt that it just goes bananas from here. There's a great question in chat, which I want to actually address, which says Did the it. question becomes how long investors or corporations will tolerate underperformance in the future when it happens versus politically correct images or beliefs. Preach. Not, I, I, I think it's a false premise. It doesn't. What? Well, because I actually don't think they're like, if like, just let's just take one small issue. Let's just take board diversity. Like, and let's like narrow it super down. Like, do you have a woman on your board? If that became the rubric by which people allocated capital, then companies who put a woman on their board will do better as a class because they'll get more capital. Like, it's a self-fulfilling That's problem. true at the margin, but there are, there are much larger forces at play. Like, the, the point I think we were making earlier, right, is this is all well and good until there's a fundamental shift in the macro dynamics. So if we go into an inflationary environment and commodity producers are again driving ga index gains, then typically commodity producers are not known for their diverse boards and, and wanting to promote women and minorities, but they are going to completely dominate and there will be a reversal where a lot of these sort of tech-oriented companies which thrive in deflationary growth environments like we're currently in will move towards the bottom of the heap. You'll get five or 10 years of underperformance. That's not how ESG money is being allocated based on minimum variance. So if you look at the things that have actually pulled in money, it's things like S&PE, which is the S&P 500 sector balanced, kicking out I don't remember what it is, like 25% of the company. So it allows for the fact that in a, in a gold and precious metals index, there are 
Um, they're just less women that are employed in the mining industry and then have the opportunity to bubble up through to the directorships. Okay, and us, anyone who has more, if you have a woman or more, you will have more representation in that index. Is that sort of what that's you're saying? That's my point, right? Exactly. And that's, you look at S&PE and E5, which State Street just launched, and their whole shtick is we're just starting with the S&P 500. We all agreed those companies should be there and we're going to sector balance them. So if energy is 10% this year, you're getting 10% mm-hmm. energy. But the 10% energy you're going to get is going to be the one that scores highest on carbon mitigation, on how they're handling. So now we're back to, that's fine, but now we've compromised our values, right? That's fine. <laughs> but no, it's fine. Values are I know, but, just, but all these things I like the party, man. Better. They're I all like a lot better. better. I like but it better yeah, too. But if I had values, I wouldn't. But you don't. I don't have values. So I just don't care. <laughs> We've long if I had it. values. I would be like, I don't want that. Right. Just well, we'll make a special mic index next. Well, that's that's a whole different Mike, ball did, you, did you profit? Remember Calpers back in like the late 90s? When was it that they kicked out Philip Morris back. And, back rocks and then yeah. and it just blew the, the uh, earnings yield on tobacco stocks to the moon. And, and anyone who was Nobody able to take it inside of that was just made out like. Retail investors who probably, you know, still hold in my retail career back then, those investors still hold that Phil Morse and they've yeah. done very well by violating their values. Well, and, and <laughs> it's, it's to the point of like, other people's values. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, but I, I think this okay. does get to the point of like how, how much are people willing to vary from the market to express these opinions? And and Correct. the money has all shown up in strategies that vary very little from the market, right? They improve their ESG scores by 20%. They go from a 50 to a 70. It doesn't, it's not that they all become saints. It's just that they incrementally do a little bit better because again, the math is showing that actually reduces your portfolio volatility yeah, like and doesn't impact your returns. If I'm a gold stock CEO, can right we control now, for sector? If I well, no, we don't. That's a, that was a different type of value, but that score is high. the The point is that if I am a competitor within the gold space and gold is killing it, the first thing I'm going to do is make sure I tick off the first ten boxes of whatever the most ESG Venn diagram is, or what, or whatever was influencing capital. Like I my stock ticker needs to start with a C. Okay, I changed the name of my company. You do what you need to do to make that yeah. change. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. I, I think that's a much more enlightened view from the perspective of asset owners because the the uh, portfolio manager gets to claim the optics of ESG without really compromising any of the profit-seeking values that they are actually accountable for as a fiduciary. One of our portfolio managers are resolved. Just, uh, Ani, why don't you put up her comment there? I 100% agree. If you see it there, yeah. Hashtag. Women in finance. There we are. Yeah. So uh, this is a really we just so score, my we just huge on our ES, uh, ESG on Resolve. Guys, allocators, listen up. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, my daughter had had the opportunity to go into finance, but she was not particularly enamored with the male-dominated sort of sphere that it is. You mean like the four white guys on this call? <laughs> That's the thing of the past. All that's going to change. Like, <laughs> think of the past. 
No, no, no. I feel like I'm in the present. No legacy stuff. Nothing changes in a year. Look, I'm, I'm a Peruvian in one of these things. I'm like, now that I'm in, now that I'm where I am, I'm getting a little darker. You know, I'm starting to be frank a little bit from you guys, the Latin American. So you're seeing progress already. Yeah. in one of these. Yeah. Ten years, it'll be like it'll it'll get to the right. We shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate what is is sort of the inching towards better behavior across the board. Like that's not arguing against present company excluded. I will also say I will also say like yes last night's discussion with one of our. traders portfolio managers internally who ran a prop task in Chicago was enlightening, right? He, he had, he's just a, a, he's got a singular focus on making profit. And he said something last night that he, that just kind of surprised me because I, he'd never, when he talked about his traders, he just talked about them just broadly, but he had more women in his, in his team than anybody else in his organization. And, it, it was because he doesn't care. Like he, he looked for the merit. Can you pull through? Can you actually deliver on what I've taught you? Can you make money? And if you can, you're in. And then when he looked around, he had more women than anybody else. And I asked him like, what, what do you think that was about? Or were you just better at choosing merit, merit based people? And he's like, no, there's clearly a bias in the industry there. And, um, and this idea that, you know, there's not women in finance because it's not an area of expertise, like your, your daughter not liking finance. That's an anecdote. I think that once you break those barriers down, and, and JP is, is a perfect example of a guy that would be able to do that, um, you can see a lot more representation of women in finance. I can't wait to tell my daughter, Mackenzie, that you referred to her as an, an anecdote and her feelings <laughs> are not meaningful in the greater oh. construct of the discussion. I will Good say this from the ETF side. God that we're on the island. <laughs> from, the, from the ETF side, we've been trying to put together some sort of ETF industry group since about 1999. There is only one, and it is women in ETFs. We've never been able to get the industry to agree on anything except for women in ETFs, which I would argue is one of the powerhouse forces in the ETF industry. Like, if that group gets together and decides a thing, it probably happens. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so... That is a narrow thing about the ETF industry. It's one of the things that I loved about the ETF industry. It's one of the more diverse parts of finance, which means it's like not even close to representational of the actual population. But compared to, say, trading floors in New York, yeah, sure. Um, you know, and and I think that's true of quant finance in general, right? I mean, I think I think if you looked at the number of CFAs who are minted every year, I'll bet you it's got a better demographic split than the broad finance industry for sure. Definitely. Yep. I, I remember um, my daughter, again, I'll, I'll harken back while going through school. And uh, her she name pers- is Anecdote. Uh, is that right? Her name is Anecdote. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, I won't mention her by name because I haven't approved this conversation for broad distribution. So if she hears it, I will have the, the lots to pay. Uh, but there's a, a program called Women in Finance. And she was uh, recruited and applied into that in her first and second year, got accepted. And it's a, quite a comprehensive program. It is a wonderful program. But the whole point was that they don't, women make decisions to opt out of finance prior to their master's. And so what they wanted to do is provide women the opportunity to operate in finance, come into finance prior to the graduation of their undergrad, because they need to get them there and influence um, women and encourage them to get into this industry 
before they graduate and go into their masters. It has to happen before that. And um, so a great, a great program. Shout out to women in finance. Um, really amazing program. Uh, still wasn't able to convince my daughter to come into finance, but um, that's another story, I suppose. Rush those math tutors too. I remember they were like they were like a <laughs> rotating in and out of your house on a, on a weekly basis. Of course, yeah. all to graduate in art history and economics. So there you go. <laughs> She's gone <laughs> on to engage in the noble pursuit of law. Yes. And, um, so I guess we I can can't... feel the lawsuit, the family lawsuit coming already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jess, I um, I do have to get going. You guys are free to continue to chat, but um, is there any oh, major topic? That's great. Yeah. That's good. I, I appreciate your time, Dave. That was a yeah, wonderful a journey fun. through great. a labyrinth of finance. I hope, hopefully it wasn't just all me just rambling about random crap. No, we were all rambling oh, about rambled random enough crap. For, yeah. it, it was great. I, I like seeing the other side of the, um, uh, of the you know, cascading effects mike green type of yeah. argument which is well uh, go, go everybody should go download Corey hofstein's paper newfound research totally agree Absolutely. yeah we, we probably should get someone from women on etfs on this too i will make a few suggestions for sure that would be awesome thank you great idea, great idea. all right man all right thank you have a great weekend guys all right yeah enjoy Everyone. cheers thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.